podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Alcoholism, post-match pints, rich breweries, managers owning pubs, uh, George Best, Brian Robson, a drinking culture. Alcohol is inextricably linked to England's most popular sport, football. And welcome to an extra episode of the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Harry Robinson, and I'm joined by author Benjamin Roberts. Uh, A couple of years ago, Ben wrote Gunshots and Goalposts, the story of Northern Irish football. And this month, in August 2019, he released Bottled, English Football's Boozy Story, the first book to look at England's most popular sports relationship with alcohol. It's uh, it's a fantastic read and has a heavy focus uh, at least in one section on Manchester United so we decided to speak to Ben to find out more. Um, one review from All Sports Book Reviews writes, it's a side of English football history I haven't seen covered elsewhere. Roberts has clearly been inspired to write the book by his own love of football and troubled relationship with booze this is a real strength of the book uh, First of all Ben, congratulations on publishing your second book and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks Harry, it's a pleasure uh, Now, Manchester United were, were founded by a railway company company's workers, not by a brewery, but like many clubs of the era, uh, soon became very closely intertwined with, with a brewery, as uh, as listeners of my other podcast, United Through Time, will know. But, but tell us about how you've looked at, at Manchester United in Bottled. Uh, it's a club with a, a long history linked to alcohol in both the way it was made and the way it's consumed. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, when you talk about the, the railway company, part of the reason for the railway company sort of instigating what they called classes of improvement um, was the low life expectancy um, in Manchester at the time. Um, I think there's there's one figure that says that 25% of working class wages were spent on getting drunk. So even though the brewery hadn't become involved at that point, it was almost the opposite of that. Um, it was yeah. a way to, to sort of keep punters, men, men out of trouble because the 18... 18- 70s um, in particular um, were a sort of high watermark for alcohol consumption in the UK. Um, so it, it was kind of thought, well, you know, particularly amongst church groups and, and employers as well, if we can find something that diverts our workers um, away from from the bottle, then that's great um, because the factory acts were coming in around the mid 1870s as well. So for a lot of men, I mean, not not all workers, not all men, but um, for a lot of them, they would be going from working six days a week to working five and a half days a week, yeah. um, which meant that they'd be finishing work at uh, you know midday on Saturday. And there was a, a great fear that for a lot of them, they'd be straight down the pub at 12.01. <laughs> for, for those listeners who don't know, United was, was founded by a railway company in 1878. And as Ben says, kind of with the, the idea of, of not keeping boys out of trouble would probably be a, a harsh way to put it but to to keep the the workforce fit um it was certainly uh quite 
a lot of football clubs around that time were founded for, for quite cynical means, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, that that was a sort of similar case um, with, well, I mean, cynical is a sort of, yeah, it's one way to put it. There's a lot of clubs, <laughs> obviously, pretty much all the professional clubs at the time were, were either in the Midlands or in the Northwest. Um, and so a lot of those, particularly in Birmingham and, and sort of uh, in some parts of the Northwest were coming out of churches as well. And really there there was much more of an emphasis on the keeping people out of trouble rather than keeping them fit. But even in London, a little bit later on, you got West Ham, um, which came out of Thames Iron Works. Um, so it was originally Thames Iron Works FC. And, and that was, again, a sort of workplace-based club, very much looking towards, well, you know, let's, let's give give these guys something good to do yeah and and the Manchester United kind of or Newton Heath as they were known until 1902 kind of strayed away from the the Newton Heath Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Company and then in 1902 with great financial trouble suddenly United are, are thrown into the hands of a brewery and a brewer John Henry Davies yeah so John Henry Davies um, gets involved as, as far as um, you know uh, all evidence seems to um, suggest um, uh, through contact he has with um, Harry Stafford, the United captain um, of the time, um, who was was desperately trying to fundraise um, to to keep the show on the road, basically, um, and and he he makes his contact possibly some stories to do with his dog, um, with John Henry Davis from the yeah. the Manchester Brewery, um, and and alongside several other figures uh, John Henry Davis um invests some money in the club and sort of keeps um keeps the wheels turning um and then goes on to to you know finance the building of Old Trafford but it, the the links between the the brewery and and the football club were were almost sort of inextricable you know I've seen some uh, some research that says that the football club was was almost a sort of subsidiary of the brewing concern. Yeah. You know, the wages were getting paid by the brewery. Yeah, and so, but aside from the the ownership of the club, what was the the drinking culture? What did you find out about the the drinking culture in English football, not just at United and in Manchester? It was it was it somewhat similar in the way that people watch football and, and had pints before and after the game, or is that something that's developed since uh, since the Second World War? It's probably changed somewhat, but but it was quite similar to how it is now. Really, fans liked buying drinks for for players, um, and there was even discussion in sort of uh, football yearbooks that were released and and football columnists commenting on on you know certain certain players fondness for for a drink and for for the sort of propensity for for fans to want to buy them a drink and and quite often them being only too willing to accept um and there's the stories i think one one of a uh, jimmy costley i think of blackburn olympic i think discovered somewhere that his his granddaughter um was sort of remembered him coming home in 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 a bad state quite often and i think he eventually signed the pledge um became a teetotaler there was a lot of pubs around then um so, so many more pubs than there were now um, but the abstinence movement particularly sort of perhaps around 1890 yeah. um the last sort of decade um of the 1800s um had about two million members so there was these two sort of competing forces if you like i remember a great story about uh, you mentioned harry stafford the united captain uh he had a, he had a great mate 
from his early days at Crew Alexandra uh, called Water Cartwright. And they held a, a testimonial for Cartwright in the, the early 1900s and uh, barely raised uh, enough money for, for it to be worth it. And a lot of the money was actually taken by uh, by what would you call the, the, the current word would be administrators as United were, were in financial difficulties. And, and with the money remaining, Cartwright bought five or six rounds for, for Stafford and his teammates. And they ended up not even having enough money to get the train home and had to, had to jib and jump over the barriers to get on the train back to crew, um, which, <laughs> yeah. which I always found kind of a, uh, an indictment of the, the, the attitude and, and uh, behavior of the time. And then United kind of uh, on the, the, the focus on United in, in bottled, as you get into the, the second half of, of the 20th century focuses on the, the consumption of alcohol, uh, starting most prolifically uh, with George Best and then moving on to, to the, uh, until it stops under Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah, I, I, I think any any book worthy of the name Bottled couldn't really <laughs> uh, avoid George Best. Um, and George Best was, was somebody that I'd sort of covered in Gunshots and Goalposts, obviously, um, even more heavily than I have in this book. In fact, I think in, in some sort of uh very loose thread it was probably while um researching some of his life for gunshots and goalposts that led me to the idea um a little while later for this book you could write a dozen books on george best (laughs) looking at different parts parts of his life and um you know i think there's there's one out there or coming out very soon looking at the his haunts in manchester but i was Mm. really much more trying to look at the the human side um, of um, of his story and the 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 kind of the the sense that world changing as he was you know that first or almost that first Galactico that that first real celebrity footballer um, which was something that he yeah. he very much embraced um, for for a few years so that 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 sort of turned on him and and kind of made him even more paranoid. Um, because his his life was just lived, you know, completely publicly, um, and and when his life was falling apart, that was that was obviously extremely difficult for him to deal with. Yeah, and I I suppose it's it's there's no doubt that the pressure of being the game's first superstar, the the beetle that was in football uh, as he became known, that that pressure of football would. Is, is is what drove him towards alcohol in the first place yeah there was no blueprint for it and i think you know looking at, at some of the the stuff around the time um of 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 busby just just not really knowing how to deal with best because even players that were playing the same side as him had come through you know five ten years earlier and and they they lived a much more sort of austere life um than george best did and the money that they made was they made was basically just from football whereas although you know best was never earning huge amounts purely from football he was making so much money from you know boutiques and and sponsorships and advertising Mm. um and and there wasn't a a roadmap for that at that time he was sort of forging that path i suppose the 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 structure of, of support has changed so much and there's clearly um, a, a huge amount to do uh, and that there's lots of complaints about various organisations at the moment but you think about the, the structure of support back then what kind of support if any did best receive from you've mentioned Busby but also his, his teammates and, and family um, so I, I mean it it seems like Paddy Crerand was was um, one of the, 
the the most sort of honest um, with Best, and and he spent a time. Well, I think it was only about five days, but um, living with with Paddy Perrin and his family, um, just to to see mm. if that was the thing that that could sort of sort him out. And and it really, you know, after after Busby, then there's there's managers almost just saying, well, if if Busby couldn't sort him out, I don't know how we're we're going to until it until it gets to Tommy yeah. Doherty who who is the one that 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 basically and and basically sort of lays down the law and says right enough is enough this this is it and Tommy Doherty had, had been known um as having that kind of attitude from his time at Chelsea where I think he there was a slim chance um uh, in one of his seasons at Chelsea where he the team could have uh, won promotion um and they were playing up at Blackpool uh, and several of the team had gone out uh, I think it was a few nights before the game and he discovered this and rather than say right you know you can play on Saturday he'd sent about eight players home and then they'd they'd lost the game like 6-2 or something um, and it was you know it, it sort of defeated Chelsea's potential for for a certain amount of success but but Tommy mm. Doherty's attitude was and I think two of those players in fact were were George Graham and Terry Venables um <laughs> so you know they there was a very much an attitude that um right you know these are these are the rules um and yes you are special but I'm not going to treat you differently from an, any other player yeah and then um I suppose you get to the the Ferguson era and Alex Ferguson is, is obviously key in ending this drinking culture at United that carried on after best um, with a few prolific names, Norman Whiteside, Brian Robson, um, etc. But Ferguson started kind of fighting against the tide of alcohol within the football dressing room while he was at Aberdeen, didn't he? He did, yeah. So there's there's a particular story um, of, of him at Aberdeen. Um, where he's he's they've they've played a, a sort of weekday night match and there he's in a taxi on the way back um, to to his house um, and he, over the taxi intercom he hears another taxi being called um, to the stadium to take the players to a nightclub so he turns his taxi round um, and goes back <laughs> to remonstrate with the players and and really has a a, a hard line. Um, against sort of alcohol in the life of a footballer, in the life of a sportsman, um, <laughs> and, and Gordon Strachan, um, when it's announced that he's he's coming down to United, sort of re- relays this to the players like it's going to be different now. Um, and for for Ferguson, this didn't really come out of like it wasn't a sort of religious thing. It wasn't that he wasn't used to being around alcohol because he he towards the end of his playing career had run a couple of pubs. Um, and sort of credits mm. that with with part of his man management style and part of the way that he dealt with you know punters wives kind of saying you know don't don't give my husband any more um, credit you know any more tick because you know we're, we're in massive <laughs> debts and all this sort of thing. Um, so it and and obviously Ferguson's known for for visiting managers coming and and him you know offering them. A glass of wine or two after the game so it's not from this sort of pious thing but but he's absolutely adamant that it's i think he calls it something like a, a blight on the life of british football but he had uh it, it perhaps took him longer at united than it would have done at other clubs to to rid the club of this this drinking culture and, and when he finally managed to do so then united started to improve and and then the, it, it continued and continued 
Oh yeah, it was a huge challenge because, you know, he, when he arrives in '86, he's he's not Alex Ferguson as we know him now. <laughs> um, so he, he, you know, he had the respect of younger players in Scotland, um, but but he it takes him a while to to sort of get that um, that level of stature in the English game, um, and you know, with with certain financial constraints he's not able to ship players out of the club and bring in new ones very quickly so I think you know people like Whiteside and and McGrath who are who are seen as sort of the nucleus of that culture in the dressing room are actually there for two and a half three years under Ferguson Um, and it's it's really not until maybe 1990 where I think um, there's, there's perhaps only one player that survives from his first, um, I think it might be Clayton Blackmore, um, who survives from his first um, lineup. Mm. And I, I've, I like near the start of the book, there's you, you noticed as a United fan uh, in the story about the, the dentist chair ahead of Euro 96 for England with Gaza, Robson, etc. Um, and, and a squad full of, of heavy, heavy drinkers. Um, and there's, there's just one little line that, most people would probably brush over but as a United fan you look at and it's it's something like the Neville brothers are, are tucked up in bed already and that's it that's the change in in attitude at Manchester United yeah I think sort of somebody sort of sent to um just make sure that that they're okay and he falls asleep but it's no problem because um because they're you know they're not I think somebody's somebody said to some of the younger players you know this is one to miss um and and they just do yeah um, and going back to to best, there's a there's a song at United currently, uh, and Northern Ireland as as we were speaking about just before we started uh, recording about going on the piss with Georgie Best. Now, as a as someone who had problems with booze yourself, what what do you think about the the message or um, the tastefulness of a song? Kind of, I guess you could look at it two ways, but one way. Uh, going against it would be that it's kind of advocating not advocating but celebrating this the alcoholism that George Best suffered from and, and led to his death yeah I mean I'm more fam- familiar with it from the Northern Ireland side having sort of um, family from there and and kind of them being an international team that that I do take a strong interest in and I remember it must have been I don't know two two and a half years ago um, a certain section of the fans um, singing that one of the games, and I think I posted something on Twitter, you know, just saying it's just it's just quite distasteful, really, um, and got a bit of pushback from that, almost like, oh well, you know, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you know, they sing that, and and I do, and it's not that I don't have a sense of humour about it um, at all, but I think, you know, as as you put it, you know, it, it's. It's one thing to sing about a player who likes a drink but doesn't really per se have a drink problem. Um, but but even you know in the in the last couple of decades of best life, he he acknowledged that he had a drink problem kind of after maybe um, the mid eighties. Um, so for the last twenty years of his life, that was that was something that that he he readily admitted, um, and and in fact. You know, when he was when he was dying in hospital, kind of on on his drip, he had a little thing saying, don't die like me. Um, So um, without wanting to sound too kind of, uh, um, I don't know what the right word is, really judgmental. I think there's probably a better Mm. word, but 
you know it, it's probably not the best thing to be singing really yeah because i've 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 sung it and um the first time i i would have heard it united was probably the i'm i turned 19 this week and i probably heard it five years ago for the first time four or five years ago it's mm. been it's been sung regularly and quite passionately by united fans uh before and during matches for the last half a decade so i guess i i guess i now understand the complications behind it but at the time i heard it and i, th- I think it's just it's it's a strange moral dilemma that it's happened so often in in football songs and chants that you wouldn't sing this or have this kind of these words outside of outside of the game um and, and kind of on that note, to to finish up, what what do you think is is still left to be done to face what remains a drinking culture in England, um, particularly associated with football? And now it's more so the fans, but also there are some players who still um, have drinking problems. Do you think they get the support? And do you th- how do you think fans are pleased with regards to to drinking in England? I think there's a lot more. Um, being done than there was 25 or 30 years ago and part of that is there's just much more of an honest conversation but obviously conversations can only get you so far it's action that gets you a bit further than than that but there's there's things that exist now that that just didn't exist in even in the 90s like Tony Adams uh, sporting chance clinic Um, and you know there's always been treatment centers for for people to go to um, but I think having that specialist place, you know, footballers identifying with other footballers um, and, and having that, that you know, sort of it's some, alcoholism sometimes defined as, as a, a, a mental, um, spiritual, emotional and physical um, illness. And, and footballers sort of identity is about their physicality and about being able to you know, remain fit and that that's part of who they are and being able to touch the ball. Some of those places that players might have gone to even in the 90s didn't really allow them that. So I think having somewhere like Sporting Chance is, is certainly a huge um, benefit. And and for fans, um, the, the, the laws, there are still a, a huge number of laws in place related to drinking at football games, like not drinking inside of the pitch. Uh, alcohol not being sold I think it's within 500 metres of the ground by uh, off licences and, and supermarkets what do you think can be done to arrest what there, there still is a, a big problem but also what can be done to make it a more relaxed and friendly environment given that football is a, a sport that should be celebrated by families as well as hard drinking supporters of the last 30 years I, I think those laws are were obviously sort of um, cooked up um, in in the mid 80s um, and and they you know particularly punitive because they don't apply to other sports um, so it was almost a well it, it, not almost it, it was basically a sort of class-based um, punishment um, so I don't mm. think that those laws should should necessarily be on the books o- on the other hand you know you do want football grounds to be welcoming places to go so you know it could be that you you had certain parts of the ground where alcohol was sold and allowed to be drunk within sight of the pitch but I do think it is it is ridiculous you know that even when you're sort of I think I've been to a, a Chan Athletic game i'm charlton fan um four or five years ago and i uh, somebody had given uh, me and my dad some uh, corporate tickets at the amex and we were we were in the 
in the sort of corporate area and just before the game starts all the blinds came down and you know these people were behind glass um it just you know it just didn't really make any any sense to me yeah um I guess, I guess to me, it just sometimes feels like fans are, well, particularly football fans, and, and this is a point uh, that it was originally a, a class matter that they're so often treated so differently to how they would be on a on a non-match day. Um, but we'll, we'll finish it there because I've taken up far too much of your time. Thank you very much for coming on the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we can find your book in, in many places, um, online in all the, the, the normal places, but also Waterstones, can't we? Uh, yeah, definitely larger branches of Waterstones. Nice. Um, hopefully in central Manchester and central London. And central- There's definitely, definitely one in Manchester because I've looked it up. So. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> one, at least one of them stocks it. So. And for our, for our many US listeners, um, you can definitely order it online uh, from, I'm going to say the name, Anna. Yes, you certainly you can, um, as much as we don't want to say that name. So. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And uh, where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at BenjaMarkR, which is B-E-N-J-A-Mark. If you were interested in that conversation, make sure you do buy Ben's book, Bottled, English Football's Boozy Story, available on Amazon, uh, Waterstones and in various bookstores around the country and around the globe. Um, If you're interested in that conversation as well, make sure you check out my other podcast uh, that is less regular than this one. It's once a month called United Through Time. I advertised it on here a couple of times when it launched in September or October last year in 2018. It's had a small break, but it will be back near the end of this year, 2019, focusing on the most important individuals in Manchester United's long and famous history. United Through Time has one episode, one hour long, each month focusing on one of the top 30 individuals in the club's history. We started with Louis Rocca, a second generation Italian immigrant and ice cream seller who brought Matt Busby to the club, helped found the Manchester United Academy and much more. And we've also looked at Harry Stafford, who was mentioned in the conversation with Ben, and John Henry Davies, another who was mentioned. The next subject on the United Through Time podcast is the first manager to bring a trophy to Manchester United and to Old Trafford, Ernest Magnell. So if you're interested, check that out on iTunes, Spotify, Acast and everywhere else you're used to listening to this, the Manchester United Weekly Podcast on. Cheers for listening. Goodbye. Network.